The pandemic has undoubtedly accelerated the application of technology across the board. Legal practitioners over the past year have been speed dialed into meeting clients online, running cases remotely and developing a greater fluency in the technology that we have pre-COVID. I recently spoke with Dr. Ronan Kennedy from NUI Galway and Science Foundation Ireland researcher in residence at the Oireachtas on his recent report, Algorithms, Big Data and AI in the Irish Legal Services Market. The objective of the report is to provide Oireachtas members with an understanding of what the pros and cons are of technology in the area of legal services and in particular to signpost issues around the use of AI in decision making. While for some, technology can be viewed as a threat, supplanting the unique contribution that legal training and human intuition can bring to the resolution of a dispute. But there is, of course, a continuum. Technology, as Dr Kennedy points out, can supplement legal professionals, allowing them greater time to focus on impacting clients' welfare and outcomes in a better way. We talked about remote hearings, access to justice and opportunities at the intersection between technology and legal education. Um, so I, I um, teach information Dr. technology Kennedy law in the law school and in my Galway. And his current work in the that area. particular subject is something that's been taught in the law school since I think the early 1990s. Um, my now retired colleague Liam O'Malley was a real innovator in the space. Um, so he was well ahead of the game. And when he retired, I inherited the course from him. And perhaps because uh, he had started teaching it when there really wasn't that much law in the area. He had included the topic of the use of technology in legal practice in the one of the, as one of the topics. A lot of other law schools won't include that. And if you read a lot of information technology law books, they don't touch that at all. But it's, it was there, and I just kept teaching it. So I kept an eye on it as a as a as a thing that I needed to update really every year. And not that much was happening in that until maybe five four years ago. I started noticing that people were beginning to talk about. Um, new online tools, but also AI as 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 the the next big thing in that space. Um, and in 2017, I was in, on sabbatical at the University of California, Berkeley, and took as much advantage as I could of that to observe what was going on in the law school and um, to attend events, most of which weren't really law focused, but they were talking a lot about AI because it, AI had become a very uh, dynamic field at the time. So when I came back um, and I was you know, revising my materials, looking around at what was going on, I started thinking, well, there is actually things happening here and the legal services market is being affected by this. And I was essentially looking for uh, an opportunity to delve into that in more detail. Uh, and Science Foundation Ireland issued this call for um, fellows to undertake what they call public service fellowships. Um, so I said, that's a good topic for that. Uh, they basically were looking to researchers to work in the library and research service of the Oireachtas, um, working on STEM issues to try to make sure that the members of the Oireachtas are kept up to date with these issues. So I suppose long story short, that's how it, it came about. I saw that there was something going on and I felt it really needed exploration and detail and, and managed to get this opportunity through SFI. And I guess law is, is not dissimilar to any other sector. It's being disrupted by, by technology. Maybe just to unpack law tech, is there a continuum or a spectrum of law tech? I know in your report you've set out kind of three main areas. Yeah, you can think about law tech along a few different axes, I suppose. Um, like there's some of it that's 
internally focused on on helping lawyers and then there's some of it that's externally focused on people who are using the services of lawyers um, <clears throat> and some of this is um, generic technology as well so it's it, although it's used by lawyers it's not specific to lawyers that you would have something to help manage what goes on in the office or to help manage projects and and so on but I've suggested uh, in the report maybe three ways to think about it, which kind of map onto the timeline and the way that these things have have developed <clears throat> and the first is locating information and that's something that actually lawyers have been using information technology for for a very long time as far back as the 60s and 70s although you you think that we were kind of fuddy-duddy and we didn't really move with that some people did see the benefit from it um, and um, online databases of, of legal materials have been part of the skill set of lawyers now for probably a good 15 or 20 years and then you have tools that help support legal processes and those are things like word processing and so on and so forth uh, things that help support what courts do they're more recent so you have um things like courtroom recording they're very common in our i think ubiquitous in ireland now i don't think you have a courtroom in ireland that doesn't have a digital audio recording system in operation presentation tools in in court um remote hearings were being used here for quite a while um, but obviously really come to the fore with the pandemic and then the third category is what i call independent decision making um, and this is much newer this is linked to the ai machine learning topic that I already talked about and here it's basically software programs of various degrees of sophistication that um, can do some limited amount of things independently of the lawyer that's actually operating them um, so they'll do things like analyze a contract and see whether or not there might be problematic clauses in it uh, they might draft legal documents they might help bring parties together and you know trying to find where the real points of difference are in um, resolving a dispute. They're the, the type of applications that really get people excited and, and, and you know, catch people's imagination because it's AI, it's machine learning. Yeah. But are, are they, to what extent are they here and now or are they many years into the future? Are they being used currently in an Irish context? I think some of them are being used in an Irish context to some extent. I think we're still, uh, probably two or three years behind what's happening in some other jurisdictions in some contexts. But certainly from from my research, it does seem like uh, particularly the larger corporate firms are using um, those kinds of contract analysis tools. For example, they're using uh, project management tools. They're using data rooms to help manage uh, significant deals. Um, I'm not sure to what extent they might be using AI tools to try to predict the outcomes of litigation. I think some of those tools are still very much at the experimental stage. And is that uh, is that going to create an issue for, for example, <clears> if our top 20 firms, they're pulling ahead, they're applying the best of technologies, they're learning from abroad, they're translating it quicker. But what about the rest of the firms, the one down in Skibbereen, the one, you know, in Minute? To what extent, and will there be a pulling away of, of law firms, you know, in terms of corporate clients and Joe Citizen clients? I think a lot of that is going to depend on how those firms respond to uh, what's happening. And certainly there is an issue there with scale and capacity. Um, and the large firms do have more scope to plan um, and develop strategies over three or five years to try to integrate these tools into what they're doing. But on the other hand, some of these tools at least are available reasonably inexpensively. Um, and um, in 
ways small firms might actually have an advantage because if you're you know one two three four earners with say in a solicitor's office or if you're a barrister who's essentially a sole practitioner um, you can go and go I like that tool I'm going to use that tool I like that tool I'm going to use that tool um, provided you can get them at a reasonable price whereas if you're a large firm and you need to integrate that into what you already do which is a complex piece of bureaucracy and you need to train everybody up and so on it's actually quite a big job so the small practitioners have the disadvantage that they might not have the reach, but they, what they do have is is a lot of nimbleness. Um, so I th I think with a lot of these things, the way in which the story is going to play out is going to be different for different people, depending on the choices that they make. I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, the big firms are going to just continue to grow and they're going to push out all the small firms. One part of your report makes reference to the issue of legal costs mm -hmm. and how technology might be a driver for, for, for driving legal costs down. And I presume that's, in other words, you're talking about greater efficiencies in, in a lot of that process based work, mm -hmm. um, that repetitive work. But have you any concerns about in the rush to efficiency that we might be sacrificing things like quality, some key principles like fairness, mm -hmm. discrimination and so forth, particularly when we took, come to AI, AI products? Yeah, I think that is a very real concern. Um, and I think we need to think carefully about the choices that we make with these uh, tools. Um, I, I think that um, there is a possibility that lawyers might be able to reduce their costs and lawyers would be happy with that. But I think what the person in the street really cares about is whether or not the cost they're going to pay for getting legal advice is going to, to fall. And if you can get legal advice, at least at a basic level, through some sort of website or app at a fraction of the cost, it will take you to actually sit down and talk to a lawyer, then you might think that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if you do sit down and talk to a lawyer, that person may be able to ask other questions beyond what's been programmed into the app and get a, an overall picture of what the issues and problems that you have, including things that problems that you don't realize that you have. So you're not going to ask those questions of the app if you follow what I'm saying. Um, so I do think that that um, we we need to not lose sight of the uh, need to take a integrated picture of giving people advice. I think that that people will always be part of, of, of delivering legal services no matter what happens. I just think that some of the way in which that's going to be done is going to be rearranged. As you said, there's a lot of uh, relatively tedious work involved and we can maybe automate that or move that to another place in the, in the process where it can be done less expensively. Um, and that might be beneficial because then it means that the lawyer has more time and more scope to actually sit and talk to the client to figure out what is bothering the client and what does the client uh, actually need. So that that could in the longer term uh, be a benefit. Um, I don't think we'll ever have a situation where a computer is going to be able to extract all the information that's needed from a client in order to help solve the problem. And in an Irish context, again, where are we in terms of the legislation that's required in order to maybe unblock some of the the kind of developments that you're, you're anticipating? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, and the short answer is I don't know. That does need uh, more research. I did uh, get managed to get some space to to engage in this in this project, but um, it it was it was three months. It really could have been three years, and I'd still be asking questions. I think. So there are some areas where we could um, make uh, changes relatively quickly. The Royal Reform Commission has recommended enabling digital signatures in more spaces, for example, and that could help to drive down legal costs. I think in the context of the pandemic, that has been an issue, you know, people having to drive out to people's houses to get them to sign documents through a car window so they can do it socially distant, you know, that, that sort of thing, that, that could drive down costs. 
But I think the real benefits, particularly in terms of access to justice, is in terms of um, using things like AI and chatbots, particularly as a means of at least doing that initial consultation with the client and getting information from them, streamlining the process so that they go and talk to the right person. And, you know, that person then has a document which has all the information, you know, that you might ask in the first half a dozen questions that you'd, you'd ask. But what's not clear in the Irish context is the extent to which uh, that is in fact legal because our system of regulating legal services is different to the UK. The UK has some case law dealing with this in the particular context of the automated preparation of divorce paperwork um, and the UK courts so far have said this kind of uh, thing is okay, it's, it's not what they call a reserved activity. But we have sort of a hybrid model where we have some things that are listed as being reserved activities but there's a general prohibition on acting as or holding yourself out to be a solicitor and similarly holding yourself out or acting like a barrister. Um, and I think that some of the kinds of chatbot type apps could come quite close to that line and possibly cross over it. Um, and in other jurisdictions, you know, bar associations have actually um, taken legal action to prevent these kind of law tech tools being provided. So we just don't know in the Irish context yet. And there's something there about the pre the pre legal stage in terms of access to legal information as opposed to access to legal advice. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's one way around around that, or one way to kind of solve some of that justice gap. Uh, yes, it could be, but I think the challenge you'll have with that in practice is that for most people, providing them with legal information is not really going to get them that far because. If you say to people, well, this is what the legislation says, they probably don't have the expertise to really work with that. And they still are going to need legal advice as such. And if anything, they may, may come away from, you know, looking up information on, on a website. And we already have things like the Citizens Information website, for example, which contains quite a lot more confused than they were when they went in <laughs> because they think it's straightforward. And now they've got to think of those five different factors they need to bear in mind here. But I don't know how any of this actually works in practice. Whereas an experienced solicitor or barrister will have a good idea of what actually happens and how the courts deal with these questions, for example. Will there ever be a time where legal services will just become a digital service, for example, similar to, to any other service that you can acquire online? I think there'll always be a space for that human contact and that human consultation in the same way as with other very human-centered professions like medicine, for example. Um, and, and, forms of therapy, for example, you you can do a lot of that online and we've seen that in the pandemic, um, but there's a point at which you do need to have the person in front of you. More and more of this being automated and moving into the online space, but I also know solicitors and barristers who have dived headfirst into this stuff. Um, someone I know is a, uh, was working in uh, previously in one of the big corporate firms, then in a smaller firm, um, but still large enough, and he went out on his own and he, he, runs his practice from his phone, basically. And it's that, it's that age old thing of early adopters, you know, pulling ahead, mm -hmm. capitalizing on it and then actually adapting with it as, as the technology, getting in on the ground floor. Yeah, it's, it's these things never happen in a monolithic way. It's going to work out in different ways for different people. And it's not necessarily about age or geographic location or size of firm or anything like that. Well, it, it's it's a lot of it's just down to individuals who are going. No, I'll I'll have a go at that, um, and even if they don't know very much about it, they they train up and they learn, or they may be people who have been enthusiastic about it for a long time, 
but they see the opportunity and they and they go for it. One of the last parts of your report, it talks about micro directives. Yeah. So the, the trouble with a lot of this space is that there's a lot of hype and there are a lot of people who say things that are really science fiction scenarios. And I suppose we shouldn't joke about it. We're kind of living in a science fiction scenario right now <laughs> in the context of the pandemic. But um, the the sort of predictions that are made for legislation and how legislation may change, a, some of them are, are really, um, I think, a bit far-fetched. There's this idea that, you know, the, the government would, or the legislature would just have general sort of policy goals and software would automatically work out exactly how these things should be implemented in practice and it would continually adjust itself. Maybe, but I, again, I don't see that in my lifetime. What is actually happening in practice, um, and it's very much at the early stages, but it is happening in terms of, of legislation, is that um, some legislatures are exper experimenting with writing software code to implement the law at the same time as they're actually writing the human readable text of the legislation. Um, so in, in other words, if you're going to reform, let's say your social welfare law or your tax law, as you're writing out the tax text of it, you have a team working in parallel, maybe even in the same room, who are writing software that will implement those changes. Um, and in that way, um, you can model the changes. You can say, right, if we change this rule this way, what does that do in terms of the number of people who get pensions or how much it costs us or whatever it is? Okay. Um, and uh, also when the legislation is passed, uh, instead of handing that out then over to the private sector and they go off and they write software programs which try to mirror what that is, you can say, and here's a software program that actually implements all of these rules and you can just plug that in directly into whatever program you're using so you know that your software is working in the same way as our software that we're using in government. Um, now it's it's still very much at the early stages. You know, New Zealand have done some work on Australia, France. Uh, France have done a lot of work on, on their tax code and how their tax code can be um, remodeled in this way. Um, and I think that's what you're going to see in some domains, not in every different space, but in some domains you're going to see software essentially being written in parallel. And also the law itself will begin to be written in a way that is easier to translate into software. And on that point, is it easier, maybe I'm being naive, but is a civil code an easier code to adopt these type of reforms because it's far more prescriptive, it's far, while the common law, common law jurisdictions Tend, tend to be a, a bit more, I suppose, again, context specific based on broad principles that sometimes are changed depending on, on the set of set of facts. I think that might be true, um, but in practice, the sorts of, of, of um, uh, parts of the, the, the of the legislation that these approaches are being um, adopted for are areas where it's going to be written in more or less the same way in either context. So it tends to be things like social welfare and tax where you really got a set of quite prescriptive rules as to mm -hmm. what are the thresholds, you know, what at what age does this thing happen? Uh, what are the thresholds under which, uh, you know, this payment is made or not made or whatever? Um, to bring it up to the context of the last year, remote hearings is, is, is I suppose, mm -hmm. the, the largest piece of uh, law tech. Uh, now I don't know if many would call it low tech. It's it's certainly plugging a gap, um, mm -hmm. but it's never going to, like you say, never going to equate to the to the to the the original deal. One of the challenges there is the platform itself, and the other challenge is the quality of the interaction. If you had recommendations to make to, I suppose, ourselves, the barrister profession, 
the court service and the solicitors branch, what might they be in that broader area of, of low tech? In terms of remote hearings and well, sorry, I don't know, but in terms of adopting low tech and, and being seen to be and and practically embracing low tech. Or think, interrogating it. Yeah, well, interrogating, I think it is very important. Um, I think that this technology could have huge benefits, but there are a lot of risks and downsides and problems with it as well. And I think remote hearings actually are, are a good example of that. Um, I think a lot of court systems worldwide were pushed into remote hearings at short notice because they needed to. And I think they worked well enough as an interim measure to keep that system working and to deal with cases that were urgent and to prevent a huge backlog from building up for whenever the pandemic is over. Um, but I think as a general recommendation, uh, the question that I would suggest should be asked in the first instance is, is what are the human needs here and how are they best met by the technology? Um, because I think one of the things that happens um, very easily and it's, it's um, kind of the default choice when you're faced with anything uh, involving the use of technology, whether it's a remote hearing or you're thinking about electronic filing into a court, for example, or other ways in which processes can be streamlined, <clears throat> is that you simply automate what you're already doing. So you go, okay, well, we, we're, we're going to move to online, right? So we're just going to have video cameras and everybody's sitting in front of video cameras and it's going to be like in a courtroom, except it's going to be on a screen. Um, and that might be a good first step. And in the context of the pandemic, it was an emergency step and that was all that could be done. But I think it's um, better to think about how do we innovate here? How do we improve what's here? I think if you're doing that, you, you start thinking about um, human-centered design. Uh, you start asking, well, who are the stakeholders in here? What are their particular needs and wants? What are those needs and wants aren't being satisfied at this particular point in time? And how do we change the system? How do we reevaluate it? How do we start from a blank sheet of paper? Um, I often say to my students, not just about this, but about lots of the things you would, if, if you had a blank sheet of paper, you would not design the Irish legal system in the way that it is. Um, it's, there are a lot of um, choices in there that were made for historical reasons which don't necessarily make sense anymore. And um, it's, it's an opportunity to stand back from the whole thing, I think, and go, well, can we rethink this from the ground up? So there's still always going to be a place, I think, for physical courtroom hearings, but also a place for remote hearings as well, or, or, or hybrid hearings where you have some people in the courtroom and some people coming in at a distance. We already did that um, for, I would say, bail hearings and so on here. Um, and cases involving children, for example, they might be in a separate room, so they weren't intimidated by the courtroom. And that that's, um, that's all very good and, and should continue. But you might think about experiments like uh, the um, Canadian Civil Resolution Tribunal, which I mentioned in the report, where it, it's an integrated pipeline, essentially. Um, and you, um, when you first register your claim, there's software programs that try to help you lodge it and then try to help you find a resolution with the other party before actually people get involved at all. Uh, and it's only at the end of that when it's clear that the software can't help you resolve the dispute that you end up in front of a human who helps you then try to mediate and that doesn't work, then you go into more of an adversarial context. And do you have a choice as an individual to go the tech route or can you can you choose to go the public counter individual person route? My understanding is that this is uh, available. I think it's maybe the only choice for particular types of. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not an across things. the board. Uh, yeah. it's, it's for specific sorts of sorts of things. So, but those are the kinds of experiments I think we need to be trying. There's a there, there's a lot of need to take on board the 
the needs and concerns of the individual person in the street. Uh, mm. I think most people who are not lawyers find dealing with lawyers and particularly with, with the court system of litigation very intimidating. Um, <clears throat> and we should think about to what extent we want to have less of that. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to be careful not to make court something that you get involved into casually, um, not just because the practicality of you know the risk of having a flood of litigation be a last resort. It should be something that that people only do when they're really sure that their dispute can't be resolved in in any other fashion. If you make it too easy for people to to go to court, um, then every dispute is going to escalate there, and that's not necessarily healthy either. On that issue of ODR and the online dispute resolution, to what extent is the private sector setting the pace for some of this? Because I, my own recollection of ODR is that it was kind of like a, an online dispute platform for eBay or one such one such e-commerce platform that has kind of since migrated over into a kind of a, a public service application. Uh, ODR is a very broad term and really covers any kind of dispute resolution that's taking place online. It, it could encompass the online hearings that we've heard, had over the past year. Um, <clears throat> and traditionally, it was very much associated with essentially uh, private systems of arbitration that are run by the big uh, electronic commerce providers. Uh, it's only now I think that court systems are, are beginning to get involved in that action. Um, and I think they're very different models. I think possibly the public courts could learn things from the the, the, the work that companies like eBay, for example, have done. They've, they've done quite a lot of very sophisticated work in terms of figuring out ways to run uh, dispute resolution systems. But I think there are also some very important values embedded in the regular court systems that we shouldn't lose sight of. Yeah. Um, and just to conclude, the report runs to 54 pages. A lot of work went into it. What's the next step or what's anticipated <coughs> that the report will, will, will lead to in terms of actions on the part of the Oireachtas or other stakeholders? I think that um, there are a few areas as I mentioned, uh, like electronic signatures that should be looked at in the short term. Um, I think more broadly in the longer term, there needs to be a conversation and discussion uh, about um, the regulatory model that we have for legal services in this jurisdiction. Uh, and I think there are different valid perspectives on that. You know, should we allow uh, tech innovators to come into this space or do we should barristers and solicitors be trying to say no there's something very special that we do um, that would actually be damaged if we handed over too much of that uh, to people who don't have the kind of training that lawyers do uh, I mean there's th that's a complex argument because some of it is about uh, pr people protecting their turf and their competitive issues there um, but at the same time, I do think there are important values that uh, around respect for the rule of law um, that are, are part of the training of lawyers. And then in the longer term, I, um, I think uh, past that, it, 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 the questions around the way in which legislation and perhaps ultimately uh, court decisions are written in the future, I think that's important. Um, but for me um, uh, personally, I want to reflect on, on what I've learned over this and take it back into my teaching because I um, I started the report this was by saying that not much has changed in the practice of law since the time of Dickens. Um, and I, maybe I'm a bit too critical of, of, of law schools and my colleagues in law schools. And, you know, a lot of people within my 
particular branch of, of, um, of law do understand this, but I think in a lot of ways we're still preparing students for practice in the time of Dickens. I think that, and that it's not just that we need to be teaching uh, law students, trainees, devils, how to, you know, how to use a word processor or how to search stuff up online. I think those are very grand level skills. Um, but I think that the advent of the technology provides us with an opportunity, like I said, to really rethink the way in which law operates and the way in which lawyers deal with with their clients, whether those are ordinary people in the street or whether they're big businesses. And I think that we should be um, teaching lawyers to, on the one hand, see what they can do with these tools to enable more access to justice. And on the other hand, to have a critical perspective is so that they can stand back from something and go, well, actually, that's that tool or the way in which that tool, that particular tool is going to be applied is something that will damage fairness, equality, access to, to, to justice, the rule of law. Um, there's a lot of concerns around um, the biases that can be built into some of these technologies, uh, particularly machine learning tools that depend on historical compilations of data, basically. And these are things that are being applied um, in extensively in the US, not so much on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and I think that um, we need to be thinking critically about whether or not it's a good idea that a judge is being guided in their decision on bail or sentencing by historical data, which probably has a lot of prejudice already encoded into it. Yeah, and that's one of the concerns of, of many is around the ethical the ethical framework that goes around AI and, and the future of AI and trying to get in on the ground floor and have them inbuilt in the design. So a perfect yes. example of lawyers working with technology as opposed to one consuming the other. Yes, and I think it would be very important that those who graduate from our law schools and those who go on to qualify professionally have the technological savvy, but also the ethical uh, cop on to be able to ask hard questions about those kinds of tools. Um, critical thinking. Yeah, it's critical thinking, digital critical thinking, digital digital literacy, but critical digital literacy, I think, is very important. Essentially, if a vendor turns up with, you know, whatever they say is going to be the best thing since sliced bread and say, just sign on the dotted line here and just to have the capacity to stand back and go, well, I'm not sure that that actually is going to work because I know more about that technology than you think. Or actually, I don't want to do this. I don't think this this tool it's choice. Is, does, 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, One of the points that I'd written in advance was faster, cheaper, better, question yeah. mark. So mm -hmm. like, you know, is it an improvement? Like you said, I um, think it's very easy to get uh, to focus on efficiency and cost effectiveness. And those are definitely valid questions to be asking. The legal system is very slow uh, to operate um, and um, ordinary people and big businesses too can get frustrated with the pace at which these things work. But there are also reasons why lawyers need to take their time and particularly why judges and courts need to take their time with what they do. Um, so sometimes that that space for people to think about what's going on is, is useful. Um, and uh, although you might come up with the Irish legal system or the common law or whatever if you were starting from a blank sheet of paper and it probably has a lot of flaws and defects in it. It also is the result of a lot of hard lessons that people learned over the years. Yeah. So the, the th one of the things that often happens with technology, not just in the law tech space, but in lots of other spaces, is, is that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And I think we need to, um, to to step back, as I said, around issues like, you know, should should we 
enable more of this kind of technology? Do we need to re-examine the framework we have for regulating solicitors and barristers, for example? Like that's not a, a decision that should be made overnight. That 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 merits real debate, I think, and yeah. debate involving involving NGOs, involving barristers, involving solicitors, involving everybody who has a stake in it, with a clear understanding of you know whose turf they're trying to defend or what policy goal they're they're trying to put forward, and what's at stake. Yes. We're already there in terms of stage one, stage two, you know, in terms of process, in mm -hmm. terms of library research and information retrieval. But it's it's the next wave, I think, that people are most fascinated by, but the furthest away from. I think the next decade is going to be one of quite a lot of transformation in this space. Um, as I said at the beginning, lawyers did adopt some of these tools very early on. You're talking about the 60s, 70s, you're talking over 50 years ago now since lawyers started to adopt this. And then we kind of slowed down and it, the pace of, of change was much slower until probably around 2015. I really began to notice it as something. Um, but it it it's part of a wave of digital transformation that has affected lots of other industries. It's come to the law a little bit later, perhaps because we're that bit more conservative and slower to change. Uh, perhaps because they're just structural reasons around the law why it's it, it's that bit more difficult to bring these kinds of tools to bear on it um but that dam has broken essentially and uh there are a lot of um there are a lot of tech entrepreneurs um, and there are uh, professionals from other disciplines as well like accounting who are looking at the legal services market looking at the possibility of making money out of it because at the end of the day that's what why people are doing this they're not doing it for the good of their health necessarily um and um wondering are there ways in which they can they can capitalize and get involved in that so i think we'll see the pace of change accelerate if anything over over the next decade um, and i think we have a lot of big and important uh, decisions to make over that period about the extent to which the legal profession should embrace this change on that Big question note. Many thanks, Ronan and Kennedy. Cheers. Thank you. Dr. Kennedy's report can be accessed at aroctus.ie. I hope you found this a useful listen. And until the next time, stay safe and stay well. <laughs>